0: Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen.
1: My name is Bridget.
0: And we hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Now that it's, I consider it fall, Bridget. I don't know about you, but I, know. Labor Day I do is over. too. Since we are talking about fall, the weather will be cooling, and we thought it'd be the perfect time to have a cool topic for the podcast. So we invited Simon Napier Bell, who was the music manager for Wham, and several other artists, including Sinead yeah. O'Connor. He recently did a documentary called The Real George Michael Portrait of an Artist. And we invited him on because Bridget and I are just absolutely huge. Wham fans, wake me up before you go-go. You're going to be singing
1: it. (laughs) I mean, that was our time. That was our time, Colleen. We were in high school and that whole new look and everything. And we're going to talk
0: about that in our interview as well. It just brings back happy memories. It's like a little, you know, photo album of our lives. And There's so many interesting stories in his documentary that we wanted to talk to him about, things we didn't really know about George Michael, things like he never wrote down his lyrics, the lyrics that he got. He got really in his driving his car. I think with this documentary, he didn't want to do just his perspective. He wanted other people to talk about George Michael and learn new things that maybe even he didn't know about George Michael. And we also talk about the relationship between George and Andrew. Which I had always thought George was kind of the, you know, the main component of Wham, but was I was kind wrong. of like
1: Mr. Main Wham. Yeah. Yeah. It's really so interesting to find out that piece, you know, of history and what Andrew's up to now and seems very happy. And
0: um, th- that's and very And do you remember that he married Banana Rama's lead singer? I
1: No. I mean, uh-huh. I didn't remember that until I watched the documentary. And I was
0: like, oh, didn't know that. That I didn't know that know. at all. So yay, happy for them. And just as a side note, Panorama, if you're listening. You've been talking about menopause a lot lately in the media. We would love to have you on. So, you know, topics at gmail.com. Get in touch with us. We would love to have you on the show. One quick reminder, make sure you've gotten your tickets if you're in the Nashville area or if you'd like to fly a girl's trip to Nashville for our October 8th Conversations with Prime Women event. You know we've been talking about it and the event is five weeks away now, so Make sure you get your tickets. You can go to eventbrite.com or you can go to conversationswithprimewomen.com and either place you can get the tickets. We have just a list of amazing panelists that are going to be talking about everything from health and wellness to style and beauty. We have celebrities, Melissa Gilbert and Mindy Cohn, who are going to be talking about their own journeys and just an inspiring day to celebrate midlife women. We really want to see you there. Get your tickets now. If you have any questions, hot flashes, cool Topics at gmail.com we're happy to answer them so let's start talking about the life of george michael with simon napier bell we'll talk to you after welcome back to hot flashes and cool topics today we have on simon napier bell and as we mentioned his documentary is out now about george michael welcome to the show simon good
2: to be here
1: you know you wrote this documentary the real george michael portrait of an artist and we learned so much just from watching your documentary, things that we didn't know about George Michael. And so what really made you want to write the documentary?
2: Well, I didn't write it. That was the
1: key I mean, that was the key, <laughs> I mean, that,
2: that was the key uh, thing. I'm The reason I made it was I saw so many documentaries about Wham and George, many about George, and they were so bad and they were so sort of vulgar. And, and um, they always had this very a very a very aggressive commentary you know and then george did this and then george did that and george thought this and you think that's they don't know you know and I, I wanted to make something which which was everyone who knew george and, and worked with him and was friends with him and really uh, understood him as much as anyone could um they they could talk and we could edit it together and there'd be no commentary it just they would tell the story about the george they knew And, of course, I knew George, too, but I didn't put that in the film because I really wanted to learn from other people. uh, If there was anything more I didn't know, there was there are quite a few things I learned which I hadn't known, which is really interesting.
0: As a manager of artists, you obviously have a a keen eye for talent. What was it when you first met him? What were your thoughts when you first met him? And did you see something in him that you just knew this is somebody who's going to be a star?
2: yeah i mean it was it, i first met it was him and andrew it was wham and i'd seen them on top of the pots which is our big tv show which, which you know it goes to about 16 million kids watching it's the equivalent of about over 120 million kids in the states watching it's an unbelievably influential program and they'd done their first ever tv show on it, and it, they'd been utterly brilliant i mean i've seen so many acts gone to that show the first time and they're hesitant or nervous Uh, they were brilliant they were like they'd been doing it their whole lives and I just knew that this was going to be a big act and so I managed to get to see them they came around to my flat and on tv they looked like a couple of twins you know these these two guys around town out in the clubs picking up the girls having a good time and when they came into my apartment they ceased to be twins they were completely and totally different you know, Andrew was the guy you saw in the video, you know, the, the lad around town who was having a good time, didn't care about anything. George was really careful, thoughtful, cautious, planning his life out, you know, working uh, new in advance, all they wanted to do. And I thought, this is brilliant, because they could project that incredible image, which is like a Hollywood romance, you know, like Star Skin Hutch, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. But in fact, behind the scenes, they've got both sides. They've got the carefree guy, which you need, and you've got the guy who really thinks and is careful. And that's what Wham were. Wham was the image, which came from Andrew, and the thought, the songwriting came from George.
1: You know, one thing that really stood out to me when I was watching the documentary, how much the struggle, you don't really know the struggle behind George, Michael, the family struggle with his father. Can you go uh, talk a little bit about this, this father and just how he was as a child and meeting Andrew and how that kind of brought, brought things out in him?
2: Well, you know, you've probably seen the Wham! documentary too, which tells that story in a more detailed way than I did. There's so much luck in life. I mean, George, uh, a podgy little fat boy, went off to a new school, um, wore glasses, had curly hair, had spots, and when he walked in the classroom, all the other kids laughed. And the teacher said, who's going to sit next to the new boy? And Andrew put his hand up. And Andrew was the lad around the classroom, the one I all looked up to and loved. And... Andrew offered to have the new boy sit next to him. And from that minute on, George was looking at Andrew in adulation. I want to be like Andrew. And he got his mum to buy him hair straighteners so his curly hair went, and he got contact lenses and you know, got his mum to cook special foods so he's on a diet. And he wanted to be a copycat of Andrew and and he saw that as a step towards gaining the confidence. When you see you see pictures of him when he was eleven years old, that little respectable kid, and then you see him walking along the the catwalk on the final gig at Wembley. And you say, Yeah, it's just possibly the same guy. That all came from Andrew. So there's this amazing luck. But of course his dad, a hardworking Greek patriarch, not a bad guy at all, but you know very traditional Greek father. He wanted George to follow in the family footsteps. Uh, He had a restaurant, a very successful restaurant, a provincial restaurant. successful. Wanted George to go into that, perhaps go from there to having several restaurants or be a businessman. He didn't think George could sing. He thought this was silly and a feat. And and, um, George would spend all his time listening to music. And Dad thought he ought to be out learning a trade. Um, And they argued nonstop. Continually, I mean, his father talks about it nowadays and says, you know, how I was brought up, that's what you're meant to tell your child to do. It took him a long time. George had to be successful really for four or five years before his father even began to believe the success was real. Long after George had five number ones and had a million pounds in the bank, his father still said it's rubbish. It took his father a long time to come around to saying, hmm, I guess you've done all right. But... um <clears throat> You know, he he, was, he wasn't a bad man at all. He was just what he was brought up to be that way.
0: It seemed from the documentary, their success was very fast, like a straight up trajectory. How did they handle success, being so young, and just everything being thrown at them at once? Uh, well, actually, they handled they,
2: they handled it a lot better than most people do. Most young kids, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, you get a first big hit. A little bit worse. I mean, they they usually they end up having a sort of guilt complex because they feel they didn't really earn all they're getting. And they frequently get heavily into drugs. And George may have got into drugs 10 years later, but as wham, they didn't. As wham, they really kept their heads and handled it. Well, but that's because there was two of them. You know, it's very much easier when there's two of you. A group is not so easy because a group fragments. You might have two who are best friends and two who aren't, or one who's different, uh, and they separate out. But two is a very, very good number for handling something if they really get on well, which these two did. Um, so they could sort of depend on each other to show common sense or, you know, to cool the other one down and keep things on the road. They handled it astonishingly well. I mean, that was right when I was managing. They, were, they hit the top, and um, you'd think they're the most level-headed people ever. Under the surface, George was having a very hard time. Because he realized he was gay, and he didn't know what to do about it, and he was having his first love affairs, and he couldn't reveal it. He had to keep, you know, very, very difficult for him. But on the surface, they handled it well, and they handled it well with the media, journalists.
1: I felt for him in that when I was watching the documentary, and you saw in the beginning when they signed, and I'm forgetting the name, the first man they signed with, and they were, how old were they, like 18 or 19 years old? Yeah,
2: 18, yeah.
1: Yeah, and... I, you know, I can imagine when I was that age, signing something and really not knowing what you're signing. Can you talk a little bit about what the struggle it was with that first uh, thing that they signed?
2: Well, look, you're 18, you dream of getting a record contract. You don't, even, you're not thinking of money. You are thinking of success, but you're just thinking of, of, of a dream. You know, I'm going to be a pop star. And, um, and so somebody says this is not a very good contract. You don't want them to. You, you don't. Some sort it's better not to sign this kid. You're, you're not, not going to listen to them, and they just rushed in and signed it. The, the guy who, who owned the rack the company was lived down the street. Um, Andrew's mum was a friend of his mum. Had to be okay. He's from next door. You know that. So you have this sort of instinctive trust when you're a kid, and they signed this terrible contract. Now the contract wasn't entirely. The fault of this guy, Mark Dean, who owned the record company, because he had a a young businessman, a bit older than them. He'd made a deal with CBS Records for his own record company to be funded by CBS, and so CBS gave him everything he needed: gave him some funds, some money, background, some studio time, and you can use these contracts. So they gave CBS gave the contract, and he just took those off and got those contracts signed. So really, the CBS were the bad people behind it—the bad corporate thing which always dominates music business and then later when they found the contract was bad and they went to court about it and had a fight with this record company it was cbs who said look this is a terrible record company. you're quite right come and sign with us we'll give you a wonderful contract and gave them another bad contract but not quite as bad that's that's corporate record business for you we jumped forward yeah. to 1994 and he sued cbs to get out of his record deal and it was pretty much on the page of the newspapers every day in England for six or seven months because it was a great imagery you know there was george the, the nicely suited pop star walking into court to to be articulate and clever and to try to explain why his contract was bad the problem was it wasn't really as bad as he thought it was and um, this was the this was this is the contract they signed after I got them out of the really bad contract at the beginning and no record contracts are really very good. But, you know, by then he was worth a hundred million dollars. Uh, he'd had 12 number ones, you know, he was rich and he had a couple of houses and his mom and dad had their houses. It's difficult for the general public to be very sorry for him. And, you know, his objection, and it is a big objection all artists have and should have with the corporate music industry is when you make a record, The record company loan you the money to make the record. And you make the record and you put it out and it's a hit and a success and you pay the record company back the money they loaned you, but they keep the rights to the record. They don't give it to you. And they keep the rights forever. It's not for 10 years or 20 years. It's till 70 years after you die, they will have the rights. And it's like, you know, what happened if you borrow the money from the bank for a house and you pay the mortgage and the bank says, ha, ha, we're going to keep the house. I mean, you'd be quite upset. And that's how the music industry runs. There's a lot of good historical reasons how it came about. It's, it's, not, it's not wicked record, business, record companies all 100%, but it should be changed. It should be looked at, and it, it hasn't been. And that's the basis on which he fought the contract.
0: That reminds me of the musical ca- uh, music catalog that Michael Jackson owned of Paul McCartney, and he was trying to buy the catalog back and Michael Jackson wouldn't sell it. And it seems like it seems counterintuitive that artists should not own <laughs> their art. Isn't
2: it? It's, it's that tradition is it that the abused become the abuser. Michael Jackson had become the worst corporate, you know, uh, <laughs> he, he was behaving in the worst corporate way, worse than CBS or ABC. It wasn't any of the major companies would ever behave. Um, he really caught the bug of, of being a, a bad publisher. Um, grab McCartney's songs and then wouldn't sell them back the record industry is a very strange one because nearly all major music artists suffer some terrible lack of love in childhood that's usually what triggers them to being an artist so they have some inner angst and that is what forces them to be creative and to want to become a star and get that audience and the only way they're going to become a star and get that huge love from an audience is through the record industry so they need that corporation. And the corporation knows that they need them. And for every artist who says they hate record corporations, there'll be another one who doesn't. And I managed Sinead O'Connor, too, and everyone said the record companies forsook her and didn't look after her. But Sinead said to me, if it hadn't been for the record industry and record companies, I would have ended up a petty thief and been in jail. I was a delinquent. And I found something better to do through music, and I needed the record industry. So she didn't take that point of view, even though she'd suffered a lot from it. So George, like everyone else, needed the record industry to be what it was. Then he wants to change it. He wants to tame it. He wants it to be less bad than it is. It's understandable. It, it's unfair. And yet, if the industry wasn't that you know, rampantly profiteering beast, it wouldn't be there promoting his record and spending millions on teenagers trying to make them into stars.
0: In watching the documentary and in watching some other information, Andrew kind of was just along for the ride. Like, it didn't seem that there was any kind of competition between the two of them. Andrew seemed to kind of pick the clothing and, you know, neon. When I think wham, I think neon, everything. But it seemed that he was, at least from what I saw, quite gracious when George Michael wanted to go out on his own. What was that like when... He said, I'm going to be a solo artist.
2: Right. Well, Andrew wasn't along for the ride. Wham was Andrew. You know, if you look at a painting by Van Gogh, who who does that painting belong to? The man who put the paint on it um, or the person who got the canvas? George was the canvas. So Andrew was what Wham was. Andrew was the image of Wham. It was looking at Andrew, which gave George the idea for Wham. It was a second Andrew, what a wonderful combination. I'll act, pretend to be an Andrew. So Wham! was the real Andrew, was the fake Andrew, which was George. And everything you saw about uh, Wham! which is attractive and the image you, you loved and the two kids, that was Andrew, Andrew, Andrew.
1: And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back.
2: George learnt through Andrew to have the confidence to walk on stage, eventually the confidence to walk out in front of the stage ahead of Andrew. But Andrew... Taught without being a teacher in the traditional sense, but by being a, um, you know, just someone George looked up to, taught George how to become a star. George looked inside himself, inside himself, and found music. So George did create all the music. But you know, no pop star, no rock star, you could name not one in the whole history of the business has been created from music alone ever. They're created by image and music in combination. And you sometimes think the music transcends the image. It never, never does. Nor does the image ever transcend the music. You, you, People have tried to create rock stars out of wonderful imagery. doesn't work without the right music, nor does the music without... You, know, you can go to the Beatles and say, oh, there were never any better songs. Yeah, would we'll go back to the Beatles, look at the pictures, look at the four guys with their mop tots. Would those songs have been a hit without? No, they would have just passed by. And so... Those two things in combination are what makes a major artist. And that's why it was a perfect, perfect duo. Uh, half came from half each, provided what it was. And by the time it had finished, George had become somebody who is a really good songwriter, a really great songwriter, and had developed a real confidence of professionalism on stage. As you can see from that last gig at Wembley, incredible confidence. And, you know, being a star is not fun. People become stars because they're desperate for this love and support which they didn't get as a child. Children who are well brought up and nice and healthy and have good loving relationships don't want to be stars. It's miserable. You can't go shopping. You can't go to the street. You can't go to the local supermarket. You can't sit in a restaurant. Your life is a complete misery. You're swamped by people coming up to you and bothering you and asking for selfies and autographs and your advice and pulling your clothes and touching your hair. Nobody sane wants to be a famous person. It's not a nice life. And so it's fun to dream of it and to do it and to experience it. And Andrew had three years of incredible fun, made quite a lot of money. And then George says, I want to go on doing this for life. And Andrew says, well, <laughs> go ahead. I don't want to. You know, Now, Andrew might like to have gone on another year to have taken that last gig they played and played it all around the world or 400 times, made himself a $100 million. But George didn't want to do that. But Andrew also knew he wouldn't want to do more than that, that he wanted to go back to a real life and, and be, be able to be a normal person. And George didn't. George wanted to be a star. He need, didn't. I don't know if he wanted to be. He needed to be. Most artists don't particularly want to be. It's a drive they have inside which they can't move away from. It.
1: Yeah, and, and it can be very exhausting. I mean, you know, on top of when you go out in public, just night after night after night of shows and the preparation and everything that you have to put in to doing a concert, even just one, to, not to mention well, look, a look, tour. Look, so
2: look, we're sitting here talking uh, for a podcast, a very relaxed podcast. Let's suppose this wasn't a relaxed podcast. Suppose, I mean, even as a relaxed podcast, it's, it's work. But let's suppose this was live CBS News nine o'clock news. Now, now let's suppose this went on for twenty four hours. At the end of the twenty four hours, it started another twenty four hours, and it never ever stopped ever. You never went home. You never got to sleep. You never had sat down with friends. That's what being a pop star is. Right. And yeah. nobody likes it. No, I've never met a rock star who likes that life. They do like what they get from it, and but the. What they have to do to get to get that, it doesn't take more than four or five years from deciding they don't like it, but they're stuck. That is their life. That's what they do, and they nearly all of them driven to need the audience and to create music. There's usually inside these creative writing people a sort of pain, a hurt, and each time they write a, a song or produce a piece of music, it sort of ameliorates it. It helps it. It's like taking an aspirin, and they need it.
1: And you know another thing that was that was so remarkable that people didn't realize about George Michael that you included, was his charity and how he didn't. Incredible. Yeah, he didn't want to be recognized. You know, he. You know, can you talk a little well, bit that, about that? That's,
2: that's a very British thing. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't. Want, it's a difference between Britain and America a little bit. Is that in America people tend to announce that they're putting a billion dollars into this, million. and in Britain the tendency has always been rather the other way around. It's, it's part of our British gentlemanly tradition, you know, you you don't talk about it. But George would certainly be embarrassed by it. He, he obviously felt, you know, he was earning money beyond what he what he needed. I mean, everybody does. Once you've got a million or two, what do you need? 20 million or 100 or a billion. And, and he probably felt some embarrassment amongst his friends that he, he, he probably felt a distance between people which he didn't want. And he, one way of helping that was to, to help people. And what, I think what he helped, he did give enormous large amounts of money. He gave all the royalties from uh, Christmas went to the Ethiopian fund. The royalties from what was his biggest selling album, which is his greatest hits album, ladies and gentlemen, that all went to the Terence Higgins Trust, which is a, a UK AIDS fund. I mean, 18 or 20 million dollars. But what he enjoyed most was he had been watching television in the morning or a talk show, and he there'd be some young whose wife needed an operation they couldn't afford or broken his eyeglasses and couldn't read or needed an operation and George would just call up and say tell them whatever money they need I'll I'll give it to them but the only condition is you mustn't use my name um and he really enjoyed doing that and um I understand I mean it would give you an enormous amount of pleasure to be able to do that and um I felt it I think he, he felt he sort of owed it to be in return for for himself being so rich and well looked after by the industry.
0: His writing style, George Michael, he didn't write songs down on paper. What was his process in writing these incredible songs?
2: It was just something I was shocked by because I didn't know I'd, I'd managed him. I'd been in the studio with him working. I'd never noticed it, that he never wrote anything down. Now, that's not to say he didn't write his songs like anybody else does, sits at night thinking that would be a good line, this would be a good line, Uh, I'll try it out when I get to the studio. But he never wrote anything down. It was all in his head. Now, if I'm going shopping somewhere and I want 30 things and I haven't written them down, I'm going to forget quite a few. I mean, probably most of them. And then buy a lot of things I don't want as well. Um, He had some little compartment in his brain in which he could write things down in his head as he gets on paper and just open it up and look at what was in there and get them out again every time. I, I, I think autistic people have things like that I and mean, maybe he was slightly autistic but he had that ability and everyone in the studio was always amazed by it because he'd go in the studio and they'd make a backing track and say it's time to sing and he wouldn't like most singers put a scrap of paper out of his pocket and look at all the lyrics and start singing. He just went up the microphone and started singing. The appearance was that he was making the words up as he went, but that's very unlikely. I mean, I knew George very well. He, he definitely would have thought them through and worked them out, but he was pulling them out of his head rather than reading them off a piece of paper. And if he sang something which he didn't like, he said, no, take that, I'll redo that one. He would sing a different word, sounded better, and the constantly hit the echo in a nice way. Um, my guess is, in terms of what we're talking about, they were written down, but in his head. But well, I'd never heard of anyone who could do that before. And every single producer we talked to commentated on that and said they'd never seen anything like it. And there was another really interesting thing, too, is he, he, his boyfriend, Kenny, told me, um, he said, when he lost his drum license, he stopped writing songs, and Kenny couldn't understand why at first, and then he realized that George always, since the beginning, had done all his songwriting hours. He used his car as a little capsule. He'd get in the car and he'd drive, and that's where he thought and sang and wrote songs. Wow, And wow. Um, that was something else I hadn't known about. I didn't... That isn't actually in the film, because Kenny didn't tell me on camera. He told me later. But um, it was just an interesting thing, that he lost the driving license, and his songwriting dried up. And we, we, no one had ever thought about it. Before. Well, how this came up as he did a he had a, he had an appointment to sing a duet Long and Winding Road with Paul McCartney and uh, he was going to go on stage in front of 20,000 people and walk out Paul was already on stage join Paul and sing Long and Winding Road and and it was perfect utterly totally perfect and he was living with Kenny they were living together and he'd never rehearsed it when Kenny was in the house all day he knew that George had never ever rehearsed it he'd never heard him sing it or think and it, then it suddenly occurred to him. That's what he does when he goes out in the car. That,
1: that is that's, amazing.
2: That's where he rehearses the songs.
1: That is wow. something. And, you know, in the documentary, too, the loss, the loss of his first uh, serious boyfriend, yeah. AIDS. Um, and then that, you know, I'm sure that sparked something with his, you know, donations and cures for. HIV. Um, of course it did. I mean, yeah. of course.
2: I mean, when you've lost your boyfriend to HIV and at that stage it was a disease which desperately needed funding and, and uh, for medical uh, science to investigate how to cure it. Um, definitely. that And that triggered that. And uh, it also triggered the court case Sonia because, you know, when somebody very close to you dies, the first response is anger. And anybody who's had some of their love die knows that you get angry i mean it seems irrational but that's what happens and that was the moment when he was most upset with things sony were doing and the the anger from anselmo dying i think really triggered him into doing that but the the charity definitely was pushed along by that
1: and then i just i really enjoyed having kenny goss on there as well to hear you really got intimate stories and what it was like to live with him Um, and even though they had broken up is that correct they had um
2: yeah, 100%. I mean, they, they were, yes, they had broken up. I mean, uh, George always said you know, we haven't really broke. Up. I still love him, but he was living with somebody else for four years. Um, it was a really strange thing when I was making the film. Uh, I, you know, I I'd, I'd known George from the beginning. I'd done his home in in Bushy in North London, um, most of the places he'd been, but I'd never been. I'd, I'd been to Dallas before, but I'd never been to where he, he lived with Kenny in Dallas. When I arrived in Dallas and met Kenny, who I hadn't met before. Um, We talked on the phone, but I hadn't actually met him. I felt something. I felt an affinity with George, uh, which I can't explain. It was extraordinary closeness. There was, you know, sometimes you feel something which can't be expressed any other way, but you just feel it. You're in a place. You feel an atmosphere. There was an atmosphere about Dallas and Kenny, and Kenny showed me the house they lived in. And uh, you knew instinctively, looking at and the gallery which they built together, you knew looking at it that this was a real close, intimate love affair. You, you could, be, Kenny didn't say that. I just felt it. There was something which exuded itself from all the all the things which were around them—the house and the art gallery—and um, the story. And it was very, very strong. And I, so it was something. I now mean, I'm not someone who is particularly sensitive to those sort of things. People say, don't you feel this or that? I said, no, not really. <laughs> but I did then.
0: Did you stay in touch with him after your professional relationship ended?
2: Not really. I mean, the music business is a very strange business. Anyone you've worked with or you know, every time you meet your best friends, big hug, how are you, how's going on? Oh, we must have dinner together, da-da-da-da-da. They don't see them again for another year or two years. And then it's, you know, it's a music event or whatever, that's where you usually meet them. Um, and you go through that all again. And you always mean to, I think, only two or three times after I stopped working with Guam until he died, did we really spend any little length of time talking. Usually it was just that, that casual music business thing of how lovely to see you, which is not completely false. I mean, you always mean it, but then other things come up and go on. You don't get around to seeing each other. So I didn't really seem as much as I would have liked to.
0: What were your feelings when it seemed like the drug abuse was taking over, and and what was your perspective when you saw that kind of downward spiral?
2: Well, it, there are several different moments. When I first realized he was heavily getting into drugs, and I mean, I, I, when I said I didn't keep contact with him, I was very much in, in contact and aware of what was going on always. I mean, his, when he was in Wham, I'd introduced him to my doctor, Who's one of the only three doctors in the UK who's both a, a practicing psychiatrist and a medical doctor? And so he got the doctor went from curing his bronchitis on the to becoming his, his shrink, you know, the guy he wouldn't talk to, him, and really kept him alive and sane. I mean, that doctor's relationship was the most important thing in his life, probably probably more than the boyfriend's. And um, so I was always aware of that, because he the doctor was still one of my best friends. And when I was aware that George was getting heavily into drugs, the first thing was surprise because in the days of Wham!, when his mum was alive, he was he was very puritanical. I mean, you know, if I did anything wrong or had one, Andrew had one too many drinks, George was the first person to give him a good ticking off, you know, and say, you've got to control yourself and don't do this. And, um, he had that sort of bossy thing about him. So the thought of him getting into drugs surprised me. But, you know, once you'd heard about it, for long period of time, you got used to the fact that it was happening. But then I became aware it was much worse than that. It, was, it wasn't just taking drugs now and again. It was. It, it was. He always had this thing about gambling, but, um, not with money, but with. It, it excited him. He liked to do something which was dangerous. That was probably why he went to these toilets and had sex and Hampstead Heath and things like that. I should think the drugs were the same. It was just, Let's try one more, slightly more dangerous drug, see where it takes me, see what it does for me. You'd like going to the edge. It's a very common thing with artists to want to do that. An amazing number of artists who may appear in public to be incredibly sane and well-contained and look after themselves, in fact, are continually going right to the edge to see see how far they can go before they fall off. Um and I was aware that the drugs were getting worse. Towards the end, I would hear from all my friends about how bad it was and how many drugs were being shipped off to his house every day. And it's, it was just like what you heard about Elvis. I mean, you know, he, when Elvis died and he found he had uh, what would be a, a normal person's 300-year supply of a drug, and that was a month's supply. I was like, you think, it's impossible. It how could anyone consume so many drugs? And I knew that was going off to George's house, you know. He was taking far too many drugs. You know, one of the huge problems of being a major artist is is, is people everybody. It's, it's don't don't think anyone isn't. I mean, your best friend at school says, "Oh, he's the one. He's the only one who tells the truth." To me, he's he's not psychopathic. Yes, they are. All of them are because they still want to be around you. You're, he's paying for everybody. And well, at least at least my you know my cousin, my uncle, or and so tells me the truth. No, they don't. He's giving them money every month. Anyone who give money to is telling you the truth. I think Elton told him the truth a few times, and they fell out.
1: Uh, and Elton had been through it, so he knew. So, yeah.
2: He knew. He, he was in a position where he really didn't care. You all know, right. he liked he liked George. And he knew there was no benefit at all from being psychopathic. You had to tell the truth. And he did. What happened? Then George didn't want to see him. Mm-hmm. I think the really bad thing came. When his doctor died, I, and I told you, he had this doctor for 25 years 20 years and in 19 uh, 20 2010 2011 um, doctor died and then George went seriously downhill from then on and you know any psychiatrist knows that you will never stop someone who's an addictive drug taker you'll never get rid of the drugs what you'll do is you'll move him from really dangerous illicit drugs to ones which can be prescribed and which are not so dangerous and and can be got without endangering yourself legally. And um, if that's removed from you, then the, the chances are, and I think it's what happened, George, then went looking for drugs from illicit places and got into worse drugs with worse people.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show and for doing this documentary. I think it shed light on some things that we weren't aware of, at least not in the States we were aware of, so we appreciate your time today. We want everybody to go out and check out the documentary. It's it's wherever you can find it. And thank you so much, Simon, for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. It's an absolute
2: pleasure. It's very nice talking to you.
1: Thank you so much, Simon, for being on our show. This was so fascinating, interesting. I just really enjoyed the documentary. Make sure you check out The Real George Michael, um, it is on, I caught it on Amazon Prime, but you can catch it all over. So make sure you watch it. It really is interesting. And it was so nice. I felt like hearing from Kenny Penny. Goss. Yeah, his, I was just um, thinking of it. Yes. Uh, it, it was really, that was very touching. Um, I just felt like you really got to understand a lot about who he really was and just that charity work that he did. I found that so incredible, the way he just call up if he was watching a show or something and just say, you know, I want to do that
0: for that person, but just don't tell them it's me. If you have any questions about this episode or any of our other ones, you can always email us at hotflashescooltopics at gmail.com. Remember, most of these episodes will be on YouTube as well. So if you want to actually see the conversation, you can just go over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. It's free. And just watch all of the episodes that we have permission to put on that will be on the YouTube channel. Follow us on all social media. Have a great week, guys. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.
1: Bye.